Well, just like in darts, you don't get to make up the rules, right? Uh, You don't get to make up the rules in life either. You don't get to determine how the score is kept, and you certainly can't change the target. The only thing you can do really is work on your aiming and your throwing skills. God has a target for our lives, a standard for living. We don't get to make it up. We don't get to create our own scorecard. The book of Titus is calling for believers to live out what we believe in the everyday stuff of life. So we've talked about husbands and fathers and what God expects of us. We've talked about wives, mothers, and what God expects of women. And now we look at how we live and work under authority. Uh, Paul is saying to us through the scriptures that the gospel does something so radical in your heart that you will live honorably to your authorities and glorifying God no matter your setting. The gospel. What is the gospel? I'm going to give you a very quick definition. If you're taking notes, this will be the first blank on the notes I've given you. The gospel is very short, very brief explanation. Through Jesus, God saves sinners. You guys believe that? All right, let me ask you, how many of you are sinners? (laughs) Right. So is this good news? Absolutely. Through Jesus, God saves sinners. Sinners, this is a glorious truth, right? Um, but do we really believe it? In the book of Romans, Paul begins the most theologically rich book in the Bible by saying this. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So this is the gospel that God is saving sinners through Jesus. But the good news of the person and work of Jesus is able to save any sinner. Do we believe that? Here's the follow up question. But how powerful do we really believe this gospel is? If God can't even save sinners from griping about the work at their job. Or save them from complaining because washing dishes and sweeping the floors isn't in my job description. Or save them from bad-mouthing the boss when he's not around to the co-workers. Or save them from speaking evil of our president or our governing authorities. So here's the question. How powerful is the gospel really? What I find is sometimes we preach a gospel that says Jesus saves us from sin eternally. But we're not sure if he can save us from a bad attitude today. It's almost like the story in Scripture when they lowered the paralytic through the roof. You remember the story? Jesus is teaching. They've torn a hole in the roof and they lower this man through the roof right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at this man and says to him, your sins are forgiven. This is a shocking statement. Everybody around is like, who does this guy think he is? I mean, only God can forgive sin. To which Jesus responds to their thoughts. To prove to you that the son of man has the power to forgive sins. Watch this. 
That's not a direct quote. But he says uh, to this man, rise and walk, rise and walk. And then he even asks the question, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? It seems like rise and walk is going to be easy to determine whether or not it's actually been done. Right. So that seems to be more immediately challenging. But Jesus proves his power over sin by proving he has power over daily weaknesses. So this man rises, takes his bed and begins to walk. He he did what Jesus commanded that he do. It's remarkable. I wonder how strong that guy's testimony was when he walked out of the room. If people were asking him, how did did this happen? What happened to you? How did you change? You've been paralyzed as long as I've known you. How did what happened? And all the man can say is that that man, Jesus. He changed me. The truth is, that should be the testimony for all of us as sinners saved by the powerful gospel of Jesus. We should all be able to say to the questions that come to us inevitably when our life is radically different from what it used to be. People should say, what happened to you? How are you different? And our testimony like this man should be that man, Jesus. He changed me. Jesus proves his power and the power of the gospel. And it becomes real to people when they see it on display in your everyday life. So this is one of the main themes of the book of Titus is to teach us that the gospel changes the way we live every day. The everyday life of the believer. There is godliness of living That cannot be severed from believing. So Titus has has been given the task of teaching the lifestyle that accords with sound doctrine. We don't want to miss that the main idea here is evangelistic. In chapter 2, verses 5, 8, and 10, uh, Paul says this. He says, so that the word of God may not be reviled. He says, so that nothing evil could be said of us. And so that the doctrine of God, our Savior, is attractive, so that it's adorned, it's beautiful and attractive to the world. We're called to live godly lives, right? And to prove that this gospel is good and powerful. And just like that video, we don't have the right to change the target. God sets the standards for us and we aim for them for the glory of Jesus. So as we open God's word today... Um, I want to invite you to let him open your heart as a good surgeon and let the gospel of grace remove any sinful tumors that are exposed. Would you stand with me as we read from the book of Titus? We stand uh, to honor the word of the Lord. It's a pattern of Jesus, and we want to continue that pattern as we read scripture This is the most important thing we will say today. Beginning reading in chapter 2, verse 9. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is true. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we need the transforming work of your grace today. Would you, by your grace, train us to live in such a way that the gospel is adorned, is beautiful, is attractive, so that people would see the good news of Jesus on display in how we live Lord, have your way in us today, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So our text today focuses on slaves and citizens. Slaves and citizens. So in both cases, we're talking about people under authority and often under leaders who misuse or abuse their power. I want to begin with just a word about slavery in particular. Verse 9 of chapter 2, Paul begins with the Greek word doulos, which is the word for slave. It's the word for bondservant or servant. It's translated in those ways, depending on the context of the scriptures. The same word used at the very beginning of this letter to Titus when Paul says of himself, Paul, a slave or a servant, bondservant of God. It's the same word there. We're talking about slavery in its real terminology. It's not just a servant, not just an employee. These are truly slaves owned by masters. Slavery is not a recent abuse of humanity, as we can see. From the very beginnings, really, of our sinful condition, people with power have forced others into slavery, treating image bearers as property, To be bought or sold. Slavery is a prime demonstration of just how depraved and wicked the human heart truly is. 
In biblical times, when uh, Paul wrote this letter to Titus, I was doing some research and discovered that about 35% of people living in Rome at the time were slaves. That's one in three people. And of all the people that lived on the planet at the time, about 20%, one in five, were slaves. Now, not every slave uh, was treated uh, terribly, as you might would imagine. Many of them uh, chose to be um, under the authority of a, a master. Maybe they they came out of a poverty situation and came under the authority and care of a master, but they were still considered a slave. The institution of slavery at this point had risen to the point that it was culturally acceptable, and even many believers were slaves, and many believers were also slave owners. Without getting too deep in the rabbit hole of history, let me just say that Christians have not always landed on the right side of this issue. Using passages like this text, some have even attempted to prop up the evil institution of slavery. And it is a stain on the history of the church that preachers or church leaders would use God's words to sponsor their own sinful pursuits. Thankfully, history does record that Christians were the ones leading the charge to eventually um, put this institution to an end. So, of course, I just want to make this statement out the gate as we talk about slaves and masters. We stand for the value of all human life. Every person is an image bearer of our creator. That's where we get our worth. It's inherent worth. Every person has worth and value. We don't look to our social status or how much money you have in your pockets or your skin color or your gender or your sexuality or any of these distinctions to give us value. We actually look not to what sets us apart, but what unites us, which is this. We are all created by God for God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. So no matter who you are, what you look like, or what your heritage is, that's where you find your worth, is in being created by the good and holy God. And He's created you. He sent His Son to rescue and redeem you. Now, in this text, Scripture is speaking into the brokenness of the culture. So people owning other people is a broken attribute of culture. It is not God condoning sin. It's Him speaking into the human heart as you live under sinful oppression. And we would know that that's our situation today. Many times people live in uh, oppressive situations. And what God is saying is, here's what I want to say to your heart in your current situation. So God is speaking no matter your context. And he's saying to us, submit your heart to the transforming work of the gospel. If you're a slave... Here's how the gospel demands that you live. And we can read in other texts about how the gospel demands how masters should treat their slaves. Does not mean God is condoning the practice. He absolutely does not. These principles in our world and in our context today where the institution of slavery no longer exists. These principles best apply to us in the context of employment. So you're under a boss, you're under an authority, and maybe your boss is a real jerk, right? So you you need to work under an oppressive type of authority situation. And what does the gospel, what does the scripture speak to you about how how God wants to transform 
your life. So these teaching points to the heart still apply to all of us today. So we're talking now about workers of grace, workers of grace. And these are uh, people, us, I hope us who have been saved by the grace of Jesus and are being transformed by the grace of Jesus. So how does grace demand that you live under earthly authority? The first imperative from Scripture is, is this. He says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters. Be submissive. Maybe your translation says obedient. Personally, I, I prefer submissive here because it seems more comprehensive. You know, there's a kind of obedience that's not submissive, right? You know what I'm talking about? Um, there's a way of doing what you're told um, with maybe the wrong attitude. And so the scripture here is dealing with both our actions and our attitudes under authority. And what Paul is saying to Titus is teach the people to serve and obey those over them with a sincere heart, with a sincere heart. I'd like for us to take a minute. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look to Ephesians chapter six. Grab your Bibles, turn over there really quickly. And I want to uh, just read an excerpt that deals with the same topic. Ephesians chapter 6, look if you will at verse 5 and following. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Listen to this next phrase, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Ooh, now it got hard, didn't it? Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So when Paul writes back in Titus and he says, um, be submissive to your own masters, we need to take into context the idea that he's talking about, not just your actions. It's not just. Um, doing the work. It's doing the work with an attitude that is uh, pleasing to Christ. So let me ask you, if, if your heart is to be brought into check when you're on your job and you're working for an oppressive leader, how can you do this? Like, how can you work with a sincere heart for that boss? And the scripture would say, if your heart belongs to Christ, you don't work for him You work for him. If your boss is a jerk, surrender your heart to Jesus. Submit to your boss as you would to Jesus. Look past your earthly master and give your obedience to Jesus. This is the command that Paul is writing to Titus. And he goes on now and he says, be submissive. And then he says, be well pleasing. So set your sights higher than just doing your job. Just check in a box. Seek to please those you work for. Now, now it's gotten real hard, right? It's not in a showy way, not eye service as men pleasers, he said in Ephesians, but in a genuine way from a sincere heart, a heart for the Lord. Seek to be winsome and personal in the way that you work your job. I've worked with guys before that 
just mope about, right? You know, just, oh, you know, just waiting on Friday, trying to get to the weekend, or, you know, moping about on the job, like, I'm just here paying the bills, you know? And what Paul is writing is to say to us that the way we work a job can either make beautiful the gospel or really diminish its value. It would make people say something like, well, so, so Jesus can save you from your sin eternally, but he can't save you from that attitude. And what we ought to come to believe and to surrender to Christ is that, yes, he can transform even that attitude. So work so that your boss is pleased with you. Christian, you have more to live for than the weekend. We don't look to the weekend for our happiness. Our joy is in eternity. And your eternity doesn't begin when you die. It began when you were born again. So aim to work as unto the Lord and you'll hit this target as well. Just a quick side note. There are some bosses who are unpleasable just to just to throw that out there. So don't let that sideline your mission. Give your heart, your work to Jesus. Please him. And maybe he will use your defiant joy to reach your sinful boss with the gospel. Paul goes on to say, as you work, don't be argumentative. Not argumentative. How many of you know words are powerful? Words are powerful. And if you um, mouth off or talk back or argue with your supervisor, you say something disrespectful or dishonoring, especially in public, you may undo in a matter of moments what you've worked on day in and day out. Your witness and example is not just in how you live at work. But in what you say and in how you say it, James reminds us that the tongue is incredibly dangerous. He calls it a restless evil full of deadly poison. James 3, 8. So learning uh, self-control in this area of what you say could be really challenging, probably more so for some than others. I want to look again to the Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 3. The one who guards his mouth protects his life. The one who opens his lips invites his own ruin. A quick story here. I worked a job one time and um, we we're all in the office. And one, one lady, her job was to answer the phones and to be uh, that sort of first touch point for all the customers and clients we dealt with. And she had a really bad habit of answering the phone with the most sweet and kind and courteous conversation. She would just really uh, smooth talk, all of our clients. And one of our biggest clients calls and she's just talking him up and blah, 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 blah. And her really bad habit was that she'd hang up the phone and immediately say something awful about whoever it was that was on the phone. And I always knew this was a bad idea, you know, but I had only been there a little while, didn't think I had a place to tell her, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. Um, and one day, one of the biggest clients that we had at our, at our job calls the office and she's just, oh, it's the sweetest thing, da, 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 da. And when she went to hang up the phone, it didn't quite hang up. And she immediately said, that guy is such a jerk. I hate talking to him. And she just lost it. Well, that client didn't uh, work very far from our office. And before the end of the day, that woman was fired. He came and personally... 
made sure our boss knew what had happened. And she lost her job that day. Proverbs says, the one who guards his mouth protects his life. A fool's mouth, Proverbs 18, 7, is his devastation. His lips are a trap for his life. Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. And then Psalm 39, 1, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. That's an interesting verse, right? There is wisdom in guarding what you say. You know, I think um, the scripture teaches that our mouths speak from our hearts, right? But there is something cyclical that happens when your words come out. You actually train your heart what you believe and what you feel. And it's this cycle. So as you speak evil, that evil comes back to take root in your heart. And then it comes out worse. It comes out worse. The Proverbs are very wise in saying, guard your mouth. Don't be argumentative. But I want to I push you here on this point because I feel like this is a problem for most of us. When, when the boss is out of sight, we might tend to go, golly, bum, he tells me to do that. Is, that. is Paul dealing with that? Absolutely, right? I want to ask you, why is this a struggle? Why do our mouths mouth off? Uncontrollably, Why do we say and speak evil in these settings? And um, what, what I want us to see is that Titus is teaching us that it is grace that transforms us, right? His grace saves us and his grace is training us to live in godliness. So if grace is what trains you and simply put, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Let's connect some dots and maybe you complain and argue and mouth off because you think you deserve more than you're getting. And grace, if it were to take root in your heart, it would breathe out gratitude, not argumentative and complaining. If you listen to uh, social media today and others around you, whenever you face a problem, People actually feed entitlement, don't they? You don't deserve that. You shouldn't be treated like that. Oh, you don't have to put up with that girl. You stand up. You, you. Right? The advice of the world today is to to feed entitlement, not grace. What does grace say that we deserve? Are we going to talk for a moment about what we deserve? Because as Christians, we would have to say we deserve hell. Eternal suffering. Well, now that puts everything else into perspective, doesn't it? And maybe if you work a job that's a little bit miserable, maybe your grip on grace would help you get a grip on your mouth. Also, grace recenters your life. For all sinners, we we default to a self-centered living, right? It's all about me. It's it's my job. It's about me. Am I happy? Am I getting my keep? Am I getting what I deserve? I've been here five years. It's time I get a raise. Me, 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 right? But grace re-centers your world. It's a great re-centering. We don't work for ourselves, mainly. The scripture teaches that we work as unto the Lord, It's no longer for my boss or even for me. It's for Christ. He's now the center. And when he is the center, 
you won't be so argumentative. Paul goes on to say, not pilfering, not pilfering. We don't use this word, so let me just define it for us. Pilfering is stealing, very bluntly. It's just to take what is not yours. Maybe it's a stapler or a pen, or maybe, um, maybe it's fudging your time on your time clock, or go down the list. But if, again, if you think you're entitled to more than you're being paid, you probably have a propensity to take things into your hands or, or into your pockets that are not yours. The Bible is clear. This is not how people of grace work. And James, uh, Paul is teaching and he's calling Titus to, to say very clearly, don't pilfer, don't steal, don't take. It was very tempting for a slave in this time who's working for a wealthy master. He's left all alone, all alone to care for his home and his stuff and his things. It's very tempting for a slave to just take something and say, oh, that was broken. I don't know what happened and take it and sell it and, you know, pay for something. Pilfering is very common. But again, I want us to dig to the bottom. Why would we do this? Why would we steal from our jobs? Maybe the driving force of your stealing is a sense of entitlement. Or maybe it's because you you like stuff and you, you think. The more stuff you have, the more money you have, the, the, more, the happier you'll be. And I want to call you in this case to repent and believe the gospel. In Christ, you have the greatest treasure of all time. Do not trade the gospel of Jesus for trinkets that will not last. The Bible teaches about earthly possessions and says that rust and moth will destroy them. But we have a treasure that rust and moth will never destroy. Cling tightly to the gospel of Jesus as your true treasure. So Paul wraps up this section with a sweeping admonition. It just says showing all good faith or fidelity or loyalty. And what he's teaching here is that we're to work for our bosses in a way that shows who our supreme boss is. Now, this is super practical, right? Because you get to practice this tomorrow when you go to work. Most of us in the room work or do something and you get to practice submission to your authority in a way that shows how good God is. There is a way. There is a way to claim God is in your life and not be transformed. And Paul wrote about that, if you remember, in Titus 1.16. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So right here at the end of this passage, Paul is saying, live and work in such a way that you show all good faith, loyalty, fidelity to Christ. Be faithful. The gospel changes how we live and work our jobs. Amen. It changes how we relate to all authority, including our government, our earthly rulers. We're now citizens of heaven, citizens of heaven with true freedom that cannot be taken and an ultimate allegiance to God. So I want to talk for a moment now about citizens of grace in chapter three, verse one. Uh, Paul opens chapter three, writing to Titus. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Christians, we are citizens under heaven. 
under the eternal and gracious rule of King Jesus. And we're also citizens here under earthly rulers. So how does that work? Well, grace and an eternal perspective changes how we live under temporary sinful authorities. Would you agree that uh, our presidents, all of them, we're on number, what, 46 now, are temporary sinful authorities? Would we agree? Yeah, we're not just talking about Biden. We're talking about Trump and Bush and Obama and but down the line. They're all temporary and sinful, right? Every last one of them. And every governing authority is because they're all sinners. They're all people. We, however, are under King Jesus. And there's distinct differences, right? Jesus is not temporary and he is certainly not sinful. So we honor and worship and submit our lives to Jesus first. And then he says to us, now submit to your earthly authorities. That's the sequence of hierarchy in our lives. So before we press into some of these quick imperatives about what we should do, I want to just start with who we are in Christ. I want to tell you at least three things. There's way more, but these three things. First, we are citizens of God's kingdom. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul teaches that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await our Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven. We, that's where we live in our heart and our mind. That takes us to the second reality. Listen, we are sojourners and exiles here. We don't use these words often either, but a sojourner is, is somebody who's a, a traveler. He's passing through. This is not his home. He's just kind of passing through. Exiles have unwanted and been sent out, right? But we are, according to 1 Peter 2, 11, we are sojourners and exiles here. I love how um, in Hebrews chapter 11, the men of faith, the people of faith are commended in one particular passage. They're commended for living in tents. As an act of faith. Now, why would that be an act of faith? To live in tents. It's interesting because it shows that they knew. Their sojourners. They're passing through. One of the big themes in my heart for this year. And for us as a people. As a church. Is that we would get a hold of one big truth. Are you ready? This year. I really hope that this church would lock on to this beautiful truth. This place is not our home. This is not your home. We are sojourners and exiles here. And then last reality, we have an eternal and perfect King, Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, as the early church is beginning, in Acts 17, um, they, were, they actually had found where they were hiding out. And they, they found Jason. He's the guy who lived at that particular house, they drug him out. They were beating him. And in Acts 17, uh, I think it's verse 6 and 7, the Bible says, uh, when they couldn't find him, they dragged Jason out. And some of the brothers before the city of an authority shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. That wasn't quite accurate. But this next part is, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
From the very beginning of the church, that's been our declaration. We have an eternal and perfect king, Jesus Christ. All right, let's move quickly. So this place, this earth, this city, this United States of America is not our home. We must be careful, especially as it relates to the political climate, that we don't let our hope and our happiness get intertwined with earthly rulers. Now listen, this has happened way too much in recent years. The political climate has been the source of such strong division, even among believers. And I would argue that it's because we've allowed our happiness and our hope to get too wrapped up in earthly rulers. Our enemy would love nothing more than to get the army of God fighting earthly battles. He would love nothing more than to get you distracted with fleshly wars when we know our enemy is not flesh and blood, nor is he an elephant or a donkey, right? Titus 3 begins with remind them, remind them. Because every day we need to remember who we are and why we're here. So he says, remind them to submit. So we, followers of Christ, we submit. Christians are not anarchists. We're not rebels. We seek to live in peace and to honor and obey our leaders. Why do we do that? Let me give you two truths and one caveat. The two truths are this. First, God is our supreme authority. In 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the scripture says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor. Who was the emperor at this time? Nero, murderous, evil man. And the Lord says, be subject to whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And we could continue reading, but it essentially says, for this is the will of God, that we submit. And we submit because, number one, God is our supreme authority. And number two, because there's no authority except from God. This is a radical um, way to believe. But Romans chapter 13, one, verse 1 We just need to read these because um, it it would help for you to see it in God's word and not just my word. Romans 13, verse one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, listen, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's radical, isn't it? Because I thought we voted in our our governing authority. Authorities, right? Don't we vote and put people in power? Listen, our voting and our political system is not outside of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign and he has put in place the leaders that we have. Those are two truths. Now, there is one caveat and the caveat is this. We always obey God first, even if earthly authorities command us otherwise. And that's where we read in Scripture in Acts 4 and 5 where the disciples were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. And they said, whoa, whoa, we must obey God rather than men. 
And in the event that our government tells us to do something directly in conflict with what God has commanded, well, we have no choice but to disobey. We submit and surrender and obey Christ first. So we submit. Secondly, we serve. The Bible says ready for every good work. The people of God contribute to the good of the community. Titus 2.14, it says God is making for himself a people that are zealous for good works. So we we ought to be a people who serve and contribute. And you guys as a church, man, there there is there are a few churches who are so committed to serve, especially the, the needier in our community. And I'm thankful for your hearts in this area and your willingness to serve in this way. We serve Next, we speak gently. And I don't want to drill this as I already did earlier, but we speak evil of no one. And in the context here, specifically, we are speaking evil of none of our governing authorities. So pull your mouth into check as it relates to authorities that are not directly above you. Maybe they're not at your job or at your workplace or whatever, but we have an authority in our country or in our state or wherever it may be. And the Bible is specifically telling us to speak evil of no one, including them. And for many of us, that's going to be challenging. He says, avoid quarreling and be gentle. What we know is out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The kinds of things that you say reveal more about you than it does about anyone else. You may object to this and say, well, what if what I'm saying is true? Okay. well, our aim as Christians is not just to be right, but to be love. So for the sake of the real war, listen, for the sake of the real war, avoid getting entangled in civilian battles. If possible. Paul would write in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We speak gently. We show courtesy. He says uh, in the text here, show perfect courtesy toward all people. What a sweeping command, right? Show perfect courtesy, perfect toward all. Wow. How can we do these things? All right, let me encourage you to lean up in your seat for a second. I got five minutes. Can you lean up for a minute? Those seats are so comfortable, aren't they? Lean up. Get with me right here. This is super important. How can we do all this? First, because Jesus is our standard. That's first. He's our standard. He wasn't distracted by earthly rulers. He knew they had a role in God's plan, but he wasn't pulled into the fight for earthly power. Now, even though he had all authority, right? Jesus has all authority. He modeled for us an incomprehensible submission to earthly authority. Isn't that wild? How could he do it? Well, Jesus knew the source of authority. Remember how he told Pilate? That conversation, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall between Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate said to him, don't you know what I could do to you? And Jesus said, you have no authority except that which was given to you by my father. Jesus knew the source of all authority. He restrained his own power and yielded to earthly rulers. Do you remember Jesus saying, I could call 10,000 angels? Or he said, if my kingdom was of this world we would have already taken care of business. 
Again, not a direct quote. And then lastly, um, how does Jesus do this? Well, he trusts the sovereign plan and rule of the Father. He trusted the sovereign plan and rule of the Father. He's our standard for how we live under every authority. But he's not just our example, our standard. More importantly, Jesus is our Savior. He's our Savior. Listen, listen, we were, Titus 3.3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But he saved us, right? Here's what I know. Sin deceives you. Sin deceives you. The Bible says you're a fool. You're led astray. You don't even know it. You think you're on the right path, but you're deceived in your sin. Sin deceives you. Sin dominates you. Paul writes and says we were slaves of our own passions and pleasures. The crazy thing about sin's deception is we actually think we're free. Many people I've talked to about the gospel, they're like, yeah, I want to believe that, but I really don't want to stop doing the things I, I kind of like to do. I don't want to stop sinning is what they're saying. And they're saying to, to come to Jesus means bondage. And right now I'm living free. And what Paul is saying is, no, you're in bondage. You're a slave to your own passions. You just don't realize you're on the gerbil wheel. You're running your heart out, but you're going nowhere. Sin dominates you. You are slave to your own passions. Jesus liberates. Sin deceives, it dominates, and sin ultimately destroys you. This says, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You lose your days and ultimately you lose your life in hurt and hatred Ultimately, you're being led astray down a path toward eternal destruction. This is the way sin works. It deceives, it dominates, and destroys. So, what's our hope in life and death? King Jesus. King Jesus. Paul writes and says, Titus, teach them. He saved us. It's not by our works of righteousness, but his goodness and loving kindness according to his own mercy. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But he comes to you in mercy. We have been justified by his grace. Again, you don't deserve it, but he declares you righteous because of Jesus, not because of you. He declares you righteous. He cleanses us, washes us clean. We've been given his spirit. You're not alone to live this life. He calls us to live godly lives upright in the present age. How are you going to do it? His spirit. He's put his spirit in you. He's called you to live a way that he's equipped you to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's by his grace that we're being changed. By his spirit, we're being empowered. And what happens when you fail? Because you will. What happens? It's by his mercy. He comes in and sweeps in and says, you're not trash. I'm with you. I've got you. I've called you my child. Grace, mercy, and the spirit of our God. This is the enabling work of God to obey these commands. How do we submit to earthly, sinful, temporary authorities, be it a master, a boss, a government? How do we submit to them? How do we obey? We obey because of Christ. He's won the victory over our hearts. Our hearts belong to him. He is the eternal, perfect king. And because of him, we can submit joyfully to any authority.
Because Christ is king. Amen, church.